Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network's New Books and Popular Culture, and I'm here today with Jennifer Lazat, the author of From Goodwill to Grunge, A History of Secondhand Styles and Alternative Economies. Jennifer, thanks for joining me. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I'm hoping you can start by talking a little bit about how you came to this topic and, and how you got interested in secondhand styles. Uh, well, it's a personal background that resonated with me. I grew up in a small southern town, uh, the youngest of six kids without much discretionary income. Um, so my sister, my older sister, was sort of punk goth and introduced me to the Methodist bargain box when I was 10 years old. <laughs> and everything there was about 10 cents. So I started sort of piece cobbling together uh what I thought was a new and radical identity for myself out of vintage clothing, even though that term wasn't really in my lexicon yet. Um, so I, I bought all these weird old clothes from um, people who had traveled through, little ladies who had died and donated their clothes, so forth. Um, and when I first started going there, nobody really went. And then by about 91, 92, around the time that Nirvana became a popular group, Suddenly, there would be lines outside the door of the bargain box, which is only open Wednesday and Saturday mornings. Mm. And it always struck me as really curious. There's kind of this juxtaposition between the sweet little old Methodist ladies who were volunteering there and the sort of manic panic rainbow haired kids who cropped up in the 90s who would go there and, and scour the place for cool things to wear. So I always just kind of wondered, I thought I was making this up, you know, I was very naive about that. And I realized this is something that's been around for a long time, you know, wanting to buy secondhand because you can be more creative or as I later came to feel myself, be political. You know, I took an anti-consumerist environmental stance. And so I wanted to see the origins of it. I really wanted to know the history of it. So when in my late 20s, I went back to graduate school and wanted to study history. I really wanted to do consumerism, um, dress and fashion, capitalism, and all of these sort of coalesced around secondhand markets as interests for me. Um, so I really wanted to look at how capitalism worked in this sort of secondary and tertiary markets and how buyers and sellers work together, right? How the origins of uh, secondhand being cool and the sort of regulations and growth of uh, the markets themselves, thrift stores, and flea markets and garage sales. So that's, that's it's very personal for me, but also sort of um, ideological and political as I, you know, went through this sort of anti-consumerist phase and wanted to see if what the relevance of secondhand markets were to that. Yeah, so I have to tell you, this was really fun for me because I have some similar experiences that you do, and I, we, all, I also have a really good friend, and we joke with her that she is just she knows how to thrift, right? She knows how to buy, <laughs> but we don't really think about like that there is a long history in this and where that right. sort of history comes from. So, can you talk a little bit about sort of how you found this history or how you thought about it and structured that? in the book, and then we can talk about some of the specifics of that history. Absolutely. Well, uh, when I, you know, I really wanted, I was dogged about doing this topic. And um, some people, some senior uh, historians tried to warn me off of it, because it's not like there are 
uh, archives I yes. can go to for secondhand. <laughs> I mean, there's some. Salvation Army has archives, um, and Goodwill has archives, but it's 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 there's not a a lot of them I can go to. So I really had to get creative with where I found sources. Um, since this is a cultural history, a lot of my sources are um, patched together from from songs, from stories, from um, uh, newspapers, from all kinds of ar strange archives, LGBT historical society, or DLBT's historical society in San Francisco, all kind of had some sources about how people use secondhand and on how the markets became popular. Um, so I really wanted to understand the relationship between the growth and regulation of secondhand venues, specifically thrift stores, garage sales, and flea markets, which were kind of the major 20th century innovations, mm -hmm. and how secondhand styles become popular, right? So from goodwill to grunge, basically. Even though technically Salvation Army uh, stores come up a couple years before goodwill, I privileged alliterative value <laughs> <laughs> over chronological absolutism. Um, so anyway, I always had in my mind that sort of juxtaposition between the sweet Methodist elderly lady volunteering at the bargain box and selling my blue haired high school boyfriend a 1960s tea dress. Right. So to look at the sort of um, Christian philanthropy background of thrift stores and see how they arrive all the way to grunge in the 90s. And so you start your first chapter focuses on that, like the thrift store and the Salvation Army. And so can you talk a little bit about these origins? And it's interesting, too, because you also look at, like you said, a cultural history. So you look at sort of anti-Semitism and how that sort of impacted the thrift store movement um, and how we thought about secondhand clothes. Absolutely. So the turn of the 20th century and um, the industrialization and urbanization of the United States is the central context of thrift stores, in part because you get the large scale production of firsthand clothing and other goods, which makes it easier for people to discard still usable, more still usable items um, for a, a greater swath of the population to buy secondhand. You also, though, have you have existing veins of secondhand sales already. And most of these are through pawn shops or push cart sales, and they're predominantly Jewish run. Um, so as Eastern European uh, immigration increases between about 1890 and 1910, um, xenophobia and anti-Semitism support some of the laws and regulations um, trying to limit uh, street selling. That is the way that secondhand goods were distributed popularly. At the same time, you get holiness movement groups like the Salvation Army, right, that are becoming more and more involved in social reform and in the social gospel, right, and spreading the word through trying to do good for people in largely urban settings. And what would become the Methodist run Methodist minister who established what would become Goodwill Industries up in Boston. And so you get these people establishing a vein of what I call philanthropic capitalism, right? Something that is a profit earning entity, thrift stores, but is used, that money is then goes back into these uh, institutions that use them for uh, charitable or philanthropic purposes. But they totally use the, the anti-Semitism and xenophobia um, that supports the regulations that limit 
um, more traditional forms of secondhand distribution. Um, so basically, Salvation Army Christianizes, Americanizes, and sanitizes the businesses that had long been the province of Jewish, African-American, and foreign-born entrepreneurs in cities in the United States around the turn of the 20th century. Right, which is super fascinating, right? Um, I love the, and I think it's in the introduction that you're the story, what is it, from the late 1800s about the young girl who goes out and finds a secondhand clothing and then is... Um, found out and her family ends up getting or her household ends up getting um, smallpox and and that whole the, the narrative of like beware the secondhand store right it's fascinating from the 1860s there's a henry james story to charles dickens has a story and then these stories in like ladies home journal there are all these cautionary tales about secondhand there's, on the one hand, you don't want to be a social dissembler, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to dress above your station. Um, but by the late 19th century, uh, you get the popular acceptance of the germ theory, right? right. And you get outbreaks of um, yellow fever and all kinds of horrible communicable diseases that go um, through cloths that are distributed through cloths. So in this story that you're talking about from Ladies Home Journal, this girl wants to go to a ball, and so she buys a secondhand dress from a Jewish proprietor. And not only is she found out, right? Somebody at the ball is like, hey, that used to be Emily's dress. But then she gets smallpox. <laughs> <laughs> so there's definitely a lot of, you know, uh, apprehensions among the buying public about secondhand. And thrift stores really try to overcome that by marketing themselves as, first of all, Christian, non-Jewish. Um, as Americanizing, right? This is a mode of uh, getting uh, uh, the new immigrants, right, from Eastern European countries who often dress in a distinctive way to assimilate through dressing American and sanitizing, right? right. So Salvation Army distributes pamphlets about all these giant washing machines they have that sanitize everything and so get rid of all these plagues <laughs> that are <laughs> creeping through used clothing. Yeah. And so once they start getting rid of the plagues and and the thrift store becomes the space that people aren't as concerned as they were about, then you move into talking about then how that um, adds to sort of the rise of the flea markets and the Dada movement. And I love this sort of tie in with what we usually think about as very an artistic move, right? The movement of Dada and how the flea markets and the second hand really helped in the United States to sort of push that movement. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the flea markets and Dada. Absolutely. So, um, you know, flea markets themselves and the form that they take are connected to those sort of anti-Semitic regulations that try to make push cart sellers stable, right. To, to, to make them sit in one place. Um, but they're also become popular in the United States because they're linked to a romanticization of everything French, right? So the first flea market is Paris's Marché aux Puces. And it, so it becomes somewhat fashionable by at least the 1930s, secondhand objects of higher quality, right? And it doesn't ex quite extend to clothing yet. Um, and this is supported also by uh, avant-garde artistic movements such as Surrealism or Dada. Um, André Breton uh, writes a lot about how flea markets are these great vehicle for um, inspiring disjunction, right? You see all this stuff, 
that's removed from its productive origins. And so it sort of has an anti-capitalist use. And I mean, he's being a little bit <laughs> classist in this way, right? Because <laughs> this is a practical outlet of sales for the people there and for many of the people buying it. And he's like, no, it's this magical surrealist thing just because he doesn't <laughs> understand those objects, right? Right. Um, and Marcel Duchamp with his ready-mades, like the famous urinal fountain, right? Um, also says, you know, there's this great artistic value to objects that are removed from their original uses. Um, but my favorite is definitely uh, the underappreciated uh, Dadaist, the German-born um, Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven. <laughs> yes, which is awesome. <laughs> yes, and she is just uh, an amazing character that recently uh, feminist art critics and others have sort of rediscovered her her value and her influence. And she was largely influential, though um, you know, died in poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, so she was she was a poet, a, a, a physical artist, a sculptor. A, um, but I really think one of her main contributions is she was an early performance artist mm-hmm. in the streets of Greenwich Village in the teens and early 20s. And as the publisher Jane Heap said, she was the only one who dressed Dada. And so she links this sort of increasing voluntary use of secondhand items and um, outrageous or um, even gender disruptive dress through finding trash on the street, wearing, <laughs> making uh, bras out of squished tomato cans, wearing a birdcage as a necklace, having taillights, bicycle taillights on her bustle. Mm-hmm. And she does this in the street and she gets arrested for cross-dressing. What's one of her first appearances in the United States in Philadelphia. And she's just outrageous and she's too outrageous to really be marketable. But I think she was very influential uh, among her artistic cohort but also as a kind of bohemian prototype that led to flappers and led to, for example, Fanny Bryce's secondhand rose, who is also a models artist like uh, von Freitag Loringhoven. Um, and so she kind of links imaginatively avant-garde art and um, Fanny Bryce does and the Jewish community that's uh, originally associated with selling secondhand. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was very sad when I started reading about the Baroness and I wanted more pictures um, because I'm just imagining these fabulous outfits that she was wearing and there's yeah. not much on her. No, I know there's 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 a lot of descriptions of ways that she dressed, of the shocking things. She shaved her head and dyed her scalp vermilion. She wore postage stamps all over her face, earrings made out of spoons. But most of these are descriptions. They're, right. they're, people just didn't take a lot of pictures. <laughs> I know. I'm like, ah. And, and in this, so you talk about Dada and you brought up um, secondhand rows. And you, so you move into this also, which is fascinating, this sort of rise of collectibles. So people started collecting things. Um, and I found that really interesting as well, this idea that there is this sort of disposable income to be used to collect goods and services. And we have the pickers and people coming through and trying to find those things as well. Right. So so throughout this history, one thing that I found really important and that kind of upset any kind of expectations about the popularity of voluntary secondhand use is that there is both this kind of liberal, progressive artistic avant-garde vein to using secondhand to disrupt 
right? right. But there's also this conservative um, in the sense of wanting to go back in time and conserve what things are like. Um, conservative um, vein of, you know, wanting to kind of harken back to pre-industrial times, um, like Henry Ford's impetus for collecting personally. So you, so you get this vein of highly wealthy, conservative people celebrating not antiques, but slightly older collectibles, especially Americana um, early in the 20th century. Um, and so sort of as a pro-American and anti-industrial um, snobbery in a little bit, there's some elitism there, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can go back to these grandfather clocks so we don't buy all have cookie cutter, machine made things that the plebeians buy and use. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then you move into sort of the 1950s and what I found the most fascinating because you get into the history of the garage sale, which is, which has always existed for me. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? Like, and I never really thought about like, how did these things start? Right. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of suburban seller, the women out there, the you know, because it seems like it's a, a market very much pushed by women and housewives and sort of how the garage sale came to be. Yeah, this is this is the the institution, the secondhand innovation that I think um, that I write about is the most solidly American. It is the most dependent on the post-war American context, the new American century and suburbanization, right? The, um, the movement of white uh, expansion of middle class families outside of cities in these newly built suburbs, right? Um, but it was very much garage sales were some people call them subversive, right? Suburban subversiveness, because they kind of, they work with and undermine some of the spatial construction constrictions of um, post-war suburbs and the gender expectations, right? So this is really a way for suburban housewives to one, earn money, to socialize in a, you know, kind of isolated suburban context, um, participate in politics. A lot of garage sales fundraised for um, any number of political causes and to build community rep, uh, networks, you know, because suburbanites were um, famously very much into community groups, right? PTA, churches, all of these things expanded enormously. So this was another way for women to do all those things, but without disrupting um, post-war gender expectations. Because the major innovation of garage sales as a secondhand venue was it centering on the home, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it was, it's a domestic sphere. It's this curious sort of liminal space, right? Because it's the garage, right. which interesting too, because that is emblematic of this era, the rise of the automobile, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is the first time houses regularly, consistently had carports or garages built onto them because the automobile became so important for commuting. Um, and so these garage sales are, are examples of suburban women basically inviting strangers quite nearly into their home to look at their stuff and buy it. <laughs> it's seriously intimate, you know, um, and also can be political and also can be a little subversive in that it's a way of them earning money, not unlike and very related to Avon home sales and Tupperware home sales. Right. Yes. That whole idea of like, 
once, um, like Tupperware, I think you said Tupperware wasn't popular until someone started to sort of sell it in the home, right? Like that kind of. Absolutely. And you, and you move it to the sort of, and you also connect it to the arts and crafts movement and the DIY movement, which I, you know, it's these things that are really fascinating. And you see the, once you, once I read it, I was like, oh yes, I see all these connections. Right. So it was, you know, largely garage sales are run by women, uh, housewives primarily. Right. They both shop there and organize them. But uh, suburban men participated in making them popular through their just dogged fascination with DIY things. Right. Building things yourself, remaking things, uh, you know, making your son more manly by making a pot rod with him. Right. And, and a lot of the sort of Better Homes and Gardens and uh, Mechanics Magazine suggestions involved repurposing things, right? So buying secondhand things and spending the time and effort and um, sort of um, masculine making abilities, right, mm -hmm. uh, to, to make something new for the domestic sphere that showed the presence of masculine in the home, masculinity in the home. Um, and, and this is an interesting sort of practicing elitism through secondhand as well, because why it might be cheap to procure, to buy, uh, you know, some old chest that, you know, needs to be sanded down and you need the space, the time and the tools to remake it into something. This mm -hmm. isn't something that poor people are doing regularly. Right. <laughs> right that idea. And yeah. It's like the whole thing was interesting to me, and you you talked about it earlier, but the connection to sort of churches and civic engagement. So I live in a very small Midwestern town at the moment, and everyone gets really excited because at least twice a year, you know, the large churches have their huge rummage sales, right? And everybody is there. There's big signs that are up. And we know when like St. Paul's has the rummage sale and when First Presbyterian has their rummage sale and Wesley and you're there, right? At those rummage Absolutely. sales. Yeah. And, and rummage sales do have an old history too that I talk about throughout here. And I, I think they were intrinsic. They started to become really popular at the end of the 19th century as a way of fundraising for churches or African-American women use them as a mode of fundraising for civil rights activity activities as early as the 19th century. Um, and, and these were respectable women for the large mm -hmm. part, right? So this is another way of trying to, of, of um, making secondhand sales more respectable and dovetailing with the popularity of collectibles, right? Right. This idea of wanting to individualize your consumerism you know, because a, a lot of the expectations of post-war America is that these are conformists. They live in cookie cutter houses. Um, they're all buying the same new crap. But that's not really true. A lot of them really wanted to distinguish themselves through consumerism, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. <laughs> but they have a Chippendale chest, right? There's right. this great story about a woman, a young couple who really don't want to have all this new cheap furniture that everybody has so they save up to buy a Chippendale chest and it's just super important to them and it's quote-unquote authentic right <laughs> and that sort of leads into that idea of like sort of the vintage right the vintage clothing and, and so then you move into um 50s and 60s and that vintage clothing movement and one thing that I love is like the the raccoon fur coat um, right rage and so can you talk a little bit about this sort of 
this, and it, you call it an invention, right? So this move to like vintage clothing and why vintage clothing becomes important. Absolutely. So uh, I have two chapters about that era that distinguish between um, two sort of veins of use of secondhand that become secondhand clothing, particularly that become popular in the 50s and 60s. So the one chapter, the invention of vintage is kind of talking about that elitist thing, right? Mm -hmm. This, uh, I want to distinguish myself from the middle class, right? And show that I have better taste and um, more advantages and more possibilities. So the word vintage comes originally from distinctions in, about wine, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it was applied to automobiles and furniture around the 20s. But it wasn't until the 50s that it was ever applied to clothing. And it's sort of this kind of upgrade of secondhand, right? Instead of just saying used clothing for sale, vintage is a way to be able to, frankly, charge more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and to describe it as something more valuable, right? To say, no, this was something that was really special. And in the post-war years, secondhand clothing, like those mass-produced furniture and other various household goods, um, became more affordable. Synthetics became popular, clothing, more people could afford more clothing, and clothing somewhat became more homogenized in America, the way people dressed, right? It wasn't as obvious, it wasn't as easy to uh, distinguish your social status through buying new clothing. Um, so this whole uh, vintage fur, raccoon fur coat is really emblematic of sort of kind of the components that it took to make secondhand uh, fashionable um, among an elite class. So there's this couple that lives in Greenwich Village, um, the Salzburgs, uh, Salzmans, and uh, the husband is a successful architect and the, the wife loves to buy secondhand. And one day she's lamenting at a party that she saw this awesome 1920s raccoon fur coat at Goodwill, but she hesitated and somebody else got it. Well, a kid that's there, one of her husband's students says, you know what, my cousin or some distant male relative owns a boys and men's shop and they have all of these fur coats left over from the 1920s because there was this mad fad in the 1920s for raccoon fur coats. Um, Red Grange, the football player, and Ruta Valentino made them kind of popular. And so if you were an Ivy League guy going to a football game in your dad's Model T, you needed to have a... Then the market crashed in <laughs> 1929, and this was a, you know, a, a sign of audacious wealth that was just not viable for many after that. So um, boys and men's stores were left holding thousands, by some estimations, a couple of million of these fur coats that just weren't selling. And they kind of moldered for a long time until 1955 <laughs> when um, Davy Crockett, uh, Walt Disney's Davy Crockett series came out. Every little boy wanted a raccoon skin hat. And so the young man at the party knew that his relatives, boys and men's store, had all these coats because he'd been offered a job to cut them up to make these hats. Um, so he's like, I know we still have some. So he gave them to the Salzburgs, who Sue Salts, Saltzman, sorry, Saltzman. So Sue Saltzman would wear it around town and get all this attention for her 20s look, right? She liked to wear cloche hats and dangling beads and white lipstick. She had the whole 20s thing going on. Um, so finally, she's like, there's a market for these. And she and somebody else went into business and started buying all these raccoon fur coats from thrift stores 
and from uh, um, new outlets that had been holding on to them for 20 or 30 years. And eventually, um, they were featured in Glamour magazine, and Lord and Taylor called them and said, can you have 400 of these? So Lord and Taylor is the end-all and be-all for uh, collegiate wear in the 50s. Um, and so they advertise these, as do many other um, first-hand department stores, as, you know, um, as wonderfully seedy and as, you know, having this bedraggled, moth-eaten quality about them that was desirable. And it's the first time vintage is pegged in advertisements, right? And so vintage raccoon fur coats. These are old. <laughs> These are still <laughs> And this all kind of, you know, build up the romance of it by saying, you know, we found a revolver and a mask in one of them, <laughs> in another, right? So it's very Great Gatsby. You can imagine the fraternity-themed parties, right? Right. Um, but it was a really short fad because they ran out of coats. The coats just, <laughs> they couldn't get anymore. Um, so it was just 56 and 57, but it's the first time that there's, and it, 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 it's rich college kids at Ivy League schools who are flooding Lord and Taylor's to buy these relatively inexpensive, quote unquote, authentic vintage coats. Right. And then you also talk about the real, the, how the fashion industry sort of changes during the post-war with the vintage coats, but then also sort of the influence of Britain. Right. And you talk, which I thought was really fascinating. You talk about male Vogue, um, editions of male Vogue and um, Christopher Gibbs and then sort of the British invasion and how that impacts uh, these these ways we think about vintage and fashion. So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. And, and this, again, is part of this exhibitionist uh, vintage vein of popularizing secondhand at the time. So there are these. um new class of noblemen and women in London area who like to travel to Morocco and exotic places and have these great parties with the Rolling Stones and hang out with musicians. And um, many of them collect uh, exotic items from Africa and secondhand clothing, particularly Victoriana items become really popular along Portobello Road, which is a huge flea market. Um, and so some of these collectors, these noble collectors who are, you know, uh, upper class British people, uh, start to open shops, standalone shops. Um, um, some of these shops are uh, Granny Takes a Trip and I Was Lord, um, I Was Lord Kushner's Valet. And they become popular among Jimi Hendrix, uh, members of the Rolling Stones, the Beatles uh, famous album cover, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Cubs, uh, Lonely Heart, sorry, just a sec, what is it? Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club's Band, where they appear on the cover wearing, it's kind of a cartoony image of them wearing um, brightly covered uh, Victorian hussar coats. This right. is inspired by a window um, at I Was Lord Kushner's Valet, the shop. Um, so you have all these wealthy, well-to-do travelers promoting this eclectic, what we would think of as kind of hippie style that's very much rooted in um, vintage wear, right? So, for example, Lady Jane Ormsby Gore, who the Rolling Stones song Lady Jane is apparently about because she dated Mick Jagger for a while. 
Um, she travels all around and she eventually works for Vogue magazine like Christopher Gibbs did for Men's Vogue. And she talks about how, oh, I'm just breaking down the classes by wearing all this stuff, by shopping at the stores <laughs> and traveling to France, to Paris, to buy old Paul Poiret pieces and to wear my grandmother's vintage uh, automobile hat. You know, so there's all of these contradictions. Like they only have the possibility to dress like this because they have fabulous wealth and right. the future and the time to do this. So it's it's very much like Thorstein Veblen's 1899 thesis on conspicuous consumption, right? They clearly do not have quote unquote straight jobs, like nine to five jobs if they're dressing like pirates, right? If they're dressing like they're stepping out of Victorian era. Um you know, opera houses. <laughs> so there's a showiness, an exhibitionist to this that's quite classist um, and influences American style too. Right. And, and then from that, on the other, then you say, and like you said, you have these two chapters on this, then you move into this idea of sort of elective poverty and how you talk about the beats and sort of the new left, that radical chic that um, Tom Wolfe uses. And so can you talk a little bit about that flip side? Right. And I mean, so I wanted to distinguish between this kind of uh, elitist, I am ex I'm showing that I'm not part of the middle class and I'm way above it, um, vintage exhibitionism and elective poverty, the sort of dressing down, the beats all wanting to wear goodwill shirts and beat clothing, right, on the road. And all mm -hmm. Clothing is described as tattered, beat, torn, ripped, every kind of messed up kind of way uh, in Jack Kerouac's novel. And um, the thing that these have in common is both of these veins are desperately expressing absence from the middle class, right? Mm -hmm. The middle class is assumed to be boring and conformist and um, sort of plastic, right? So both the vintage exhibitionists and the elective poverty who often have a kind of political valence to the way that they're dressing um, are wanting to show exception or rejection of the middle class. So the Beats dress in this way as sort of a, um, a way of saying we need to be freed from the, the creative constrictions, restrictions of the middle class. Um, and the new left is um, adopts some of this way of dressing and way of participating in consumerism through free sit stores that uh, distribute used and stolen more often right. <laughs> clothing and goods. Um, as a way of identifying with the poor, right? As kind of a movement towards poverty becomes an issue that's very, very much in the news uh, after about 1962 when Michael Harrington writes this book about the other half, right? Mm -hmm. And LBJ's war on poverty. And these issues get very much tied up with anti-war protests, second wave feminism, environmentalism. And for many of these people, by second hand, is a way of um, ethically consuming, mm -hmm. uh, not participating directly in capitalism, which is problematic because it's still part of the capitalist right. system. It still supports <laughs> capitalist exchange, um, but it, it's sort of a state scapegoat for some of these people. It's a way to still participate in mass consumption, um, but give it a kind of moral valence. It's, it's a way to sort of participate in mass capitalism and in mass consumption of the time. Um, but to give it sort of a moral valence, mm -hmm. right, to, to say that you're doing this while um, maintaining your political ideology of anti-war, anti-poverty, 
anti-capitalism. Right. And, and you talk, which is really fascinating, like the that movement into when you're talking about the hippies and um, I, I love the stuff on the diggers. Yeah. And then as well as, you know, the civil rights movement and Abby Hoffman. And so this move into which we really think of, or, or I guess I should say is often thought of um, as very anti-capitalist, right? This yes. this move. But in some ways, it really is not. <laughs> right. You know, so there's there's always, there, you know, the perception of the 60s has evolved for historians, of course. And um, it used to be this idea that hippies were co-opted, right? Mm -hmm. That that the big business marketing, everybody said, oh, we can mass produce the aesthetic of hippies and resell it back to them. Um, and then historians sort of fine tuned that and said, no, that, that was kind of, they were working at the same time towards the same end. And in reality, it's complicated, right? Some people thought that they were really being anti-capitalist and sticking it to the man, and they were simply wrong. Uh, <laughs> and, and some people were trying to make a buck off of it. Um, and secondhand is no exception. It is part of capitalism, right? So it's it's not morally accepted. And then you move into this more how clothing is uh, moving to gender, like sort of gender neutraling as the chapter of your, I'm going to repeat the chapter of your title, but um, like, but the gender fuck, right. And the boyfriend right. look and this sort of revolutionary way, the LGBTQA community um, sort of uses clothing to play with gender. And so can you talk a little bit and glam and can you talk a little bit about that? So there are a lot of contradictions with secondhand consumption, but this chapter and um, secondhand's, uh, secondhand commerce as a tool of the gay liberation movement and as sort of um, complicating gender, sexuality, identities, right? Um, lending the popularity of a queer trash aesthetic to popular music and culture more broadly is a place where I think secondhand has been most revolutionary. Historically. And so, so secondhand sort of occupies this liminal state, right? It's, it's not new. It doesn't belong to anybody, but it has belonged to somebody. So there's this connection to its previous owners that used to be, you know, anathema that used to be part of its stigma, right? Like you're going to, you're going to get the diseases from whoever owned it before. Um, and now you get people like members of the Coquettes mm -hmm. who are great psychedelic drag troupe that existed for like 20 seconds, but were highly influential in San Francisco who rely entirely on secondhand to perform gender fuck. Right. So there are these hippie men, women, children um, who dress in every which way. Um, but the idea of gender fuck is basically often described by men with beards, with glitter in their beards, wearing dresses that are, maybe torn away to reveal parts of their masculinity, right? So it's it's not cross-dressing is what it's not, right? It is not, it, it's queer. Um, and secondhand is intrinsic to the development of this aesthetic and the incorporation of it into um, uh, musical culture, right? Through glam. So the Coquettes, some of them went on to dress members of groups like the New York Dolls um, and Aerosmith even. Um, going into later period and to sort of give this glam look 
which is very much gender fuck, right? Wearing latex and big hair. But um, these are masculine men who are identifying as masculine men at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but also during the gay liberation movement, secondhand thrift stores themselves were used very much as a way to fundraise and to support um, what were called homophile groups then, right? To uh, take political action towards uh, equal rights for homosexuals. Um, the 50s and the 60s. So it's interesting all the different ways in which secondhand uh, sort of opened up that territory. Right. And in ways, this reminded me of that return to sort of dressing data and how, you know, secondhand was used as this performative piece in right. many ways. And then you have the very, for me, I guess, the very iconic picture of Patti Smith with yeah. the Bob Dylan um head in front of her and talk about sort of that boyfriend look. So that move, not only with the LGBTQA community, but also this move with um, women sort of dressing more, you know, you use Patti Smith uh, as dressing more masculine. So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Right. So, so I title that gender fucking the boyfriend look um, because there, there tends to be a difference in the 50s, 60s and 70s and how, cross-gendered dress is perceived. So women dressing like men is given the much softer title of the boyfriend look, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're sort of, it's cute. And it's gender normative or sexual normative, right? So they're, they're dressing in their boyfriend's clothes. They have boyfriends. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and they're still borrowing from this established sexual economy. And Patti Smith is very much doing that. So when she dresses in men's clothing, She's doing it, admittedly, um, as part of trying to be kind of like an all-boys club, right? Wanting to dress like Baudelaire, for example, wearing trench coats when she first moves to New York City because she wants to be like um, famous French writers. Uh, and I describe the photograph taken by Robert Maplethorpe that appears on the cover of her album Horses, um, which is also very iconic, right, as mm -hmm. sort of this... Um, um, genealogy of her male influences through secondhand clothing. So she herself says, uh, well, I wore this short sleeve, this, 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 uh, cutoff shirt that I, um, bought at a Salvation Army in the Bowery button up white shirt, which is very Patty Smith. And because, uh, it reminded her of not John Janae. Uh, yeah, no, it is John Janae. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, she bought this button-up white T-shirt, dress shirt, uh, because it reminded her of, quote, a Brassai shot of Jean Genet, right? So she envisions her shirt as part of this photograph, um, partly because she so admires Jean Genet. And then she, uh, Robert Maplethorpe asks her to toss her coat over her shoulder, and she thinks she's like Frank Sinatra. And there is even a monogram on this secondhand shirt, um, uh, RV that she imagines as belonging to having once been worn by Roger Vadim, who was the director of Barbarella, which is the 1968 futuristic film about a hypersexual woman tasked with saving the world. And so she's got, Duran Duran. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> she's got all these weird masculine influences, um, even though her style of dress is sometimes. Um, appropriated by feminists, right? As being very feminist, very strong. Um, uh, but for her, it's very much trying to be part of an all boys club. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. Right. And so then you move into sort of 
the next or, or your sort of, I don't know if you want to say final, but that move to this, the grunge look, right? So we move from Patti Smith, we move from this sort of hippie and even sort of the glam punk into what's happening, what happens with um, Nirvana, right? And Kirk right. Cobain and the grunge and also Gautier where he is not really happy about grunge at all, right? So this 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 tension between fashion and grunge. So can you talk a little bit about Kurt Cobain and the rest of sort of the grunge movement and how you see this playing out in the secondhand fashion? Yeah, I, I think it's very instructive about grunge to... Um view the clothing, which is intrinsic, very much uh, of a piece with the music, as a culmination of this whole history of secondhand commerce and style and political valence and generational discord and all of these things that I described throughout the book um, and genderfuck. So um, Jean-Paul Gaultier, the designer, says dismissively that grunge is nothing more than how we dress when we have no money. Um, But clearly this is not the case, right? There are throngs of wealthy, middle-class, white Americans uh, going to thrift stores, as I experienced right. in my youth, right? Um, suddenly, secondhand is wildly popular. But of course, it's not suddenly. Okay. And and grunge is often seen kind of dismissively as sort of a generational um, backlash to the conservative 80s, right? To Reagan-era mm. uh, styles, to preppy and everything. But it's not. It builds on things that consistently remain throughout the 80s with post-punk, with groups like R.E.M., with um, the rise of vintage, again, as a descriptor, as a term. Uh, it kind of goes away in the 60s and, to the, and reemerges in the late 70s. And in the 80s, you kind of get the codification of secondhand and um, culturally bricolage and um, postmodern expressions of film, clothing, all kinds of cultural attributes in the 80s um, are all part of this. And and grunge is actually in a rather sophisticated way, whether intentionally or not, incorporating all of that history. Um, It's not accidental. It's not lazy. It's not um, reactionary. It's, it's, It's actually building upon cultural trends that continue throughout the 70s and 80s. And you talk about in that chapter two that I, you know, you, you mentioned urban outfitters and different sort of these like economies that are created through this, the retro look mm-hmm. and the vintage look. And it's interesting. And you, and you mentioned some of these, but I lived in Philadelphia for a while and I always remember going to thrift for AIDS, right? So these, these, these thrift stores that are, and you've talked about this a bit, but like how we really created not only in, um, uh, like sort of smaller underground markets, but really large consumer markets, these places to go and buy thrift, right? Absolutely. I mean, by this time, of course, Goodwill and Salvation Army are multi-million dollar industries. Uh, flea markets sell for millions of dollars in the 90s. Um, and you also get the sort of philanthropic capitalism that thrift stores are premised on expanding to like AIDS um, support groups and various other causes, right? Um, and on the other hand, you get this distinction arising that is rather blurred between vintage and retro. Retro being old style, old looks, newly made, right? So I use Urban Outfitters as an example because its evolution is very instructive. 
it begins in the 1970s, in 1970, um, as Free People's Store, uh, which is was designed, was the brainchild of an anthropologist named Dick Kane. And he wanted to um, sort of create this cool place to go shopping. Some of the clothes were, some of the things were actually secondhand. Some were imports from hip places like Morocco, etc. So it was a very appealing place. But it was definitely a capitalist market, right? So free people's store might sound like he's kind of borrowing from the diggers idea of free stores, right? Where everything was free, where you go in there and just say, hey, I need a shirt. There's a shirt. I'm going to take it. No, this was a capitalist endeavor from the beginning. So free people's store, that title, I kind of think outstayed its welcome, right? When um, the 70s was renamed Urban Outfitters. And... Slowly over time, fewer and fewer of the actual vintage, the actual old clothing remained, and they began to mass produce old looking clothing, retro. So retro becomes a very popular thing in design in the 70s and design and clothing and all kinds of um, commercial outlets. And it, it is distinct to most people from vintage, vintage being actually old things and clothing people usually accept 30 years or older. Uh, to 100 years as being vintage, more than 100 as antique, whereas retro is newly made clothing that looks old. Mm -hmm. And that's what Urban Outfitters starts to, um, you know, corner that market, right? Try to sell to people who don't want to go through the trouble of digging through all the (laughs) store stacks and et cetera, um, but they want the fashionability Mm -hmm. of second look. Yeah, and it's interesting. And then you sort of end with this, this sort of move I thought was interesting of thinking about how like eBay and other auction sites also, right. Again, we have the argument that everybody wants to be authentic. Like, are you authentically vintage or, you right. know, or, or is somebody sell, like you said, or is somebody selling you a vintage look that's not really vintage. Right. Yes. And, and so this move to auction sites in different places and this um, again, this resurgence of uh, ways we can be political with how we dress. And so can you maybe talk, we've been talking for a while, so I don't know if you want to sort of summarize or talk about where you see this sort of moving now in, you know, 19 or 2000, what year are we in? 2017 and, and, and sort of how you see this movement going forward. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think secondhand is not, is here to stay as a, a popular style or styles, right. And now hipsters or, um, you know, we use vintage looks and secondhand. There's, I use Macklemore and Ryan's night, 2013 hit thrift shop, right? Mm-hmm. You know, popping tags. I wear your grandfather's clothes. I look, I look amazing, right? Um, this is not going to go away. People like secondhand because it marks them as distinctive consumers, right? As uh, be outsmarting the system, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't have to buy Gucci to look good. I'm going to spend, I got $20 in my pocket. Right. <laughs> well, Macklemore is singing in, during the midst of a recession, right? And he's saying, yo, you spent $50 on a shirt. That's just stupid. And there are going to be three guys up in the club dressing like you. And meanwhile, I'm, you know, buying your grandfather's jacket and I look amazing. This is, that is the idea that somehow secondhand is not part of the, tra- the, the common trajectory of dress or capitalism. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's either too inconsiderable um, to be subject to the moral ambiguities of mainstream capitalism 
uh, or it is somehow morally above the kind of problems of secondhand, when in fact it, it validates a lot of problems. So I, I talk also about fast fashion mm-hmm. and uh, the global labor issues involved in making fashion today in the last 20, 30, 40 years, um, and how the quick disposability of clothing uh, is, is part of that, right? So it, it's not like when you donate a shirt to Goodwill, it's going to go to somebody who is poor in Cincinnati, baby, but right. more likely it's part of the tons and tons of clothing being um, sold through these large companies that are profiting from them overseas to Africa, et cetera. And it, it's part of this whole loop, this whole system of global capitalist exchange and um, labor rights violations. Right. And so <laughs> you might not have an answer for this, but do you see a solution for this? I mean, do you see the secondhand clothing as being something people still should, you know, this might be a really loaded question. (laughs) Maybe, you know, but, and maybe there isn't an answer to that, but. I really, you know, I I, I wish I want secondhand clothing to um, be a, a a form of political engagement. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, it's, it's at least a very complicated and rife with contradictions if it is right. Right. I do think that it is a way of um, expressing identities that make life easier for a lot of people, like through queer trash um, uh, identities, making various sexualities more acceptable. I think that's one way in which secondhand clothing has really done some important things. As far as, you know, fighting the fashion beast or uh, being anti-consumerist or anti-capitalist, I don't see it as being very useful in that regards now. It's mm-hmm. just too tied up. The clothing that you're buying at secondhand stores has been through the mill, right? It has been sorted out. It's Some of the things are taken away and being um, utilized globally. And the other things are products of like Forever 21 or fast fashion places that are um, taking advantage of, of poor labor laws in countries like Bangladesh, right? Right. Um, so you're complicit no matter what you do. Right. <laughs> is, is it better? Maybe, maybe. I think that's a person that's, that's, that's arguable. Um, but I would be careful of thinking yourself too virtuous because you shop at second hand. Right. Yeah. So it's this idea of like, we need to know, like follow the money trail. So if you're buying something at a garage sale, even though it's part of this larger system, you know, the money is going to this person or this cause as opposed to these yeah. larger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's not I'm not I'm not discarding it, you know, saying it's right. got no social or political worth. But I, I think it's really easy to pat yourself too enthusiastically on the back. And I'm guilty of this throughout my life. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I do. <laughs> right. But, but but you are still participating in the acceleration of fashion and, um, you know, some of its abuses globally. Right. So, so your book was great. It was super fascinating. Like the garage sale stuff for me was the most, you know, just wonderful to hear. But um, are you working on anything new or are you, what are you doing now? (laughs) I am. I I started a book kind of, so it might become two books. It's very nascent. (laughs) Um, 
I'm fascinated by masquerade and industrializing America, the way fashion and dress and public appearance was used in industrializing America from about 1870 to 1930 um, by various groups. And I want to talk about cross-racial, cross-gender, and cross-class dress, right? Um, So things like um, how people like Buffalo Bill in the 1870s, 1880s, would pose as uh, Western gamblers. Mm. And they kind of defined what an image of the Old West was, right? It didn't really exist. It's this publicized, it it is a masquerade. Um, And conversely, how people like uh, Wall Street entrepreneurs used the way that they dressed up the three-piece business suit to distinguish themselves from uh, gamblers to say, we're not speculators in the same way. We need to legitimize ourselves through dress, partly by distinction from Old West gamblers. And there are all kinds of racialized and um, um, gendered uh, balances there, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think for that project, I might want to end with the uh, pansy craze in Harlem in the 20s and 30s, where um, it was popular for white middle class to go slumming in Harlem mm-hmm. and part to see these cross-dressing singers, performers, and this, how this preceded a crackdown on laws of, um, against cross-dressing, partly because of the popularization and partly because of um, racism. Right. <laughs> uh, so the, those that's that's what I'm thinking about. And but I'm also really, really, really fascinated with these fancy dress balls that uh, people like the Vanderbilts were throwing at the end of the 19th century. Historians have talked about them a little bit, but they haven't really dissected them and examined them. Mm-hmm. And that there are examples there of different kinds of cross class dressing, like sometimes they would dress like their servants. Mm, it's something like uh, Marie Antoinette did at one time she would have these parties that they would all dress like peasants and hang out in the country <laughs> so it's an interesting kind of crossed class performativity but I just want to examine it I don't have a solid thesis yet but that's right. what I'm looking at right now <laughs> which is fine you don't need to have one yet <laughs> no, no. <laughs> So, Jennifer, this has been fascinating. Um, Again, this is New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture, and I've been talking with Jennifer Lazat, who is the author of From Goodwill to Grunge, A History of Secondhand Styles and Alternative Economies. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Rebecca.